I want you to turn in your Bibles if you've got them. If not, just we'll, we'll put the scriptures on the screen for sure. But uh, turn to the book of Revelation. We're, of course, continuing our study of um, what overcoming looks like throughout the book of Revelation, of the overcoming of the Lamb, the overcoming of the believer, as is mentioned in, in chapters uh, 1 through 3, the, the overcoming of the saints, the overcoming of Jesus throughout um, because the, the book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ, right? So it, when we read it, we should get a picture of Jesus. We should get um, a revelation of who he is. And thank God, you know, thank God for the gospels. I, I love, I mean, I, they're irreplaceable. They're probably the most valuable uh, bit of writing that we have, are the gospels that are telling us about Jesus and his ministry here on earth. But of course, the Gospels aren't the whole picture of Jesus. They're a big picture of Jesus, but they're not the whole picture of Jesus. We get a picture of Jesus throughout the letters of the New Testament. It's Jesus is the head of the church. And we really get a strong picture of Jesus in the book of Revelation. Not only as the head of the church, but as the risen king, the glorified Lord of the Lamb that was slain, uh, of the object of worship. We, we see him so central to this. Of course, we see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all the way through it. And yet Jesus is the one that is, at the beginning of this, dictating these letters. And so John writes seven letters that Jesus is dictating to him. John gets to write it down and send them to seven churches that are in the Roman province of Asia. The Roman province of Asia, as we've, if you've been with us in this series, you know that the Roman province of Asia is not Asia as we think of it now. So we're not talking about the Far East. We're actually talking about mostly what we now consider the, the country of Turkey. And in those seven cities, now of course there's a lot more cities in, in that province than just the seven, but those seven churches were in key places in that province. In fact, they, they, they were all kind of along major trade routes. They would have been cities of influence. They would have been cities that would have um, certainly shone light into their region, which is probably why Jesus refers to the churches in those cities as lampstands, right? Because they are spreading light out. That's, the, that's one of the great purposes of the church is to be a place that shines light into dark places, right? We're really going to see that tonight because throughout history, there have been moments where people have sort of given into escapism, right? If we could only just get out, get away from the evil. If we could just get away from the darkness and just set up our little um, settlement of light, you know, then, 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 they, then the darkness wouldn't infect us. That, you know, we, we wouldn't have it so hard. If we could just, you know, start our own country or start our own little ship in international waters, you know, then we'd be all right. But Jesus said, and we talked about this on Sunday, Jesus prayed that God wouldn't take us out of the world but that he would keep us from the evil one. You know, last week we, we, we talked about part of this letter um, to the church in Pergamum, how Jesus referred to his, his words, referred to what was coming out of his mouth as a sharp two-edged sword. And, and we talked about how he used that sword to say, there are some things that you've tolerated that you shouldn't tolerate. We went back to the, 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 the teaching that Paul taught the church in Corinth about a, a guy in the church that had just been openly rebelling um, through, through his actions against the teachings of Jesus, and, and nobody was doing anything about it. And he was probably leading many others astray. And Paul said, you know, you got you to separate from this guy. This guy's this guy causing issues because it's not, this is not a new believer who is slipping into, into, into sin. This is somebody who has chosen it. 
It's probably somebody who's been in the church for a while, probably somebody who is maybe a leader, maybe someone who knows a lot better and has chosen this way. And he says, you got to get, you got to separate yourself from people like this that openly choose and say, no, I'm not going to serve Jesus. That call themselves believers, but, but won't actually follow Jesus. And Paul goes on and he says, he goes, am I asking you to stay away from all immoral people? And he says, no, because then you'd have to move out of the world. He says, it's not the problem. The world acts like the world. You shouldn't be surprised that the world acts like the world, right? They don't have Jesus. Of course they act like that. He said, God will judge them. We're supposed to judge ourselves. It's a powerful statement, especially in this day and age, right? It's very easy to get out there and shake your fist at Hollywood. It's very easy to get out there and shake your fist at all the sinners all over the place. But God said, don't worry about them. I mean, Go tell them about me. I've obviously preached the gospel, but don't worry about judging them. That's not your issue. He says, you need to take care of yourself. We need to take care of our own. It's, it's the church that we need to say, are we following Jesus? And if we are, then we are a light in the darkness, right? We're a light in dark places. So Jesus doesn't want to take us out of the world. He put us into the world. In fact, one of the parables that Jesus tells, we all know the parable of the sower where he talks about sowing the word. But there's another parable of the sower that he talks about. And in that parable, he says, in this parable, the seeds are the sons and daughters of the kingdom that he, and he says, the field is the world. So he took you and planted you in the world, right? He didn't, he didn't like separate you in a separate little garden, said, you know, I hope those nasty onions over there don't touch them. I hope, you know, I hope those, I hope that dirt never gets over here. He puts you in the soil of the world so that you bear fruit. And here we see a picture of a church that has got some issues. The church in Pergamum, you know, is a church that's under, undergoing, experiencing some, some pretty bad persecution. And, and of course, you know, that's not a new topic as we've been going through the book of Revelation. Because when John writes this, he writes it from an isle, an island that he's been exiled to. He was exiled to that island because he refused to worship the emperor. There was an emperor on the throne at that time called Domitian. And you know, bad things happen when you just inbreed. You know that, right? Like if you don't diversify the gene pool, you're going to get some crazies. And you give people unlimited power, you're going to get some crazies. So Domitian was convinced that he was divine, convinced that he was a sort of God, and he insisted that everybody worship. Now, this kind of works for the Roman government because you know, if they can get everybody to think the emperor is divine, they'll do stuff for the government. They'll do stuff for the, the empire that you might not otherwise do. What's interesting about the worship of the emperor in, in John's day was that it actually was more intense the further out to the fringes of the empire you got. Like you got to Rome and people are kind of like, well, we see the emperor walking on the street. He goes to the bathroom like the rest of us. But the people on the edges of the empire were kind of fiery with their patriotism. And I hate to burst your bubble, but there's nothing particularly godly about patriotism, right? I love Canada. I thank God I'm in Canada. It's a good country. But patriotism in itself, I mean, it really, there's, there's nothing. That's a different kingdom. We serve the kingdom of God, right? So we should, be, we should obey the rule of the land. We should pray for those in leadership and government. We should be honorable, but, you know, don't sell yourself out, right? There's a higher kingdom. And so the people on the edges of the empire were really intense on this worship of the emperor. 
Pergamum was a city that was actually an, a fairly ancient city. And, and of course, it really came to prominence when Alexander the Great came through and, and founded some things there, built some things there, passed it on to one of his generals who later uh, ceded it to another general of his. And that general eventually, when he was about to die, didn't have an heir, so he willed it to Rome. And this city became a very important point in the Roman Empire, in the province of Asia. In fact, it was the capital of that province. So what that means is, is that in the capital, there's a proconsul. So we have, uh, you know, we, we have uh, our, our representatives of government. We have our premiers in our provinces, right? Well, they had a proconsul. And a proconsul was like, there were... Without getting too technical, there, was, there were some provinces that were ruled by the Senate, and there were some provinces that were ruled by the emperor himself. Asia was one that was ruled by the emperor. And so there's a proconsul that answers to the emperor. And when the emperor's crazy, you're in a pretty precarious position. And one of the crazy emperor's best plans was to make sure everybody knew he was God and everybody worshiped him as God. And so let me put you in a position of a proconsul. If you're running a province and you answer to the emperor and the emperor is asking, hey, how are things going? Are people worshiping me? Do you really want a bunch of people saying we don't worship the emperor? Because you know what happens if he gets word that your province is falling out of line? Whose head is on the stick? Yours. So on the, especially on the edges of the empire, in places like Asia Minor, in, in provinces like this, the proconsuls took it seriously to take care of any rebels that didn't worship the emperor. You put them to death, you deal with them quick, because if I don't get this under control, the emperor's going to kill me. And Pergamum was bad for it, guys. It was bad for it. Not only that, but Pergamum was a city that was full of paganism, full of idolatry. So you had temples uh, to all sorts of gods from all across the spectrum. It had one of the the largest um, altars to Zeus, um, where Zeus is sitting on a throne. And and we're going to see in a little bit how Jesus refers to this city as a place where Satan has his throne. And that that could mean so many different things because the empire had a footstool there, had a a spot there. Zeus had a a temple there. There was a Greek god of healing that was really um, worshipped in this city. There was a bunch of them. And so this was a city that was so pagan that what they believed, their religion wasn't like something they did on the weekend. It was everything. It was in all throughout their culture. So you couldn't get a job without joining a guild that acknowledges and worships the patron god or goddess of your craft. You couldn't go buy something without having to somehow acknowledge either the worship of the emperor or the worship of some god or goddess. It was so throughout their whole culture, that when you became a Christian, all of a sudden, you are immediately on the outskirts of society. Not only do people not like you, but, but what you're doing is illegal. And, and, and maybe, maybe you think that this meant that, you know, paganism just meant that everybody wanted them to worship one thing, but that's not really the problem. See, in Pergamum, they worshiped like a dozen different gods, It wasn't that they didn't want Christians to worship one more God. It's that Christians believed there was only one God. You see, you you understand that the pagans would have been fine if the Christians had compromised and just folded their beliefs into all the other beliefs. 
They would have been fine if the Christians said, okay, we'll worship your gods, but we'll also worship um, you know, our Savior. They would have said, fine with us. That wasn't a threat. The threat was that in order to follow Jesus, you had to turn from all this other stuff. Right? See, the pagans of the day, the, the rulers of the day, would have been fine with compromised Christians. What they couldn't stand was a Christian who was faithful to Jesus and would not bend. So here we see what Jesus says to them. We've already read some of it, but we'll read it again. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. You hold on tight. You did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Of course, we talked about this last week, but he goes on and he says, I have some things against you. I have some things you need to fix. But I just want to focus on this for, for tonight. Focus on what it means for Jesus to say, I know where you live, and where you live is a really dark place. Where you live is a really rough place. So often we think, when we sing songs about the presence of Jesus, right? The Spirit of the Lord is here. We have a picture in our mind about what the presence of God looks like, right? And it's usually in those beautiful green pastures, right? That picture of Psalm 23, he leads me beside still waters, green, green pastures, all these things. But, but don't forget, on the way to those pastures, you had to pass through the valley of the shadow of death. And the, real, the reason he's not afraid in the valley of the shadow of death is because God's presence is in the valley of the shadow of death, Right? I will not fear for you're with me. You're with me. So many Christians, we have this crisis where we think, if I were doing something, if I were doing everything right, then I would be where God wanted me to be. And I don't feel like I'm where God wants me to be because it's hard right here. This is a bad place. This is a dark place. It can't be where God is. And yet, that's not what the Bible tells us. Bible doesn't tell us that that the only places that God will go are very nice places. And if you want to be with God, you've got to get out of the bad places and get to the good spots. No, he says he'll be with you. There are times of darkness. There's times where he sends us right into the darkness to shine light. There's times where there's opposition. There's times where there's an evil day and you must stand. And if you're asking the question, what am I doing wrong? Why is it dark? What am I doing wrong? This feels like death then maybe you're not doing anything wrong, but maybe the issue is you really got to look and say, where's Jesus here? Because he didn't say, I'll send you through the valley of the shadow of death. I'll meet you on the other side. He said, I'll walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. Here he says, Jesus says, I know where you live. And what a statement. What a statement to a church that realizes they're living in a very difficult city to live in. And Jesus says, I know where you live. I know where you live. Can you imagine you might have thought as a believer, has God forgotten about us because it's getting really tough here? Jesus comes and he says, I know exactly where you live. I haven't forgotten your address. I'm here. Where Satan has his throne. And maybe you're, you would sit there going, if Satan's throne is here, we should not be here. Not a good place to be. Let's go where Jesus has his throne, all right? I don't like this place. Well, Jesus has his throne wherever we are. 
He says, but Satan's throne is here. Well, now, what does Satan's throne mean? This is, does this mean this is, this is like Satan's capital in the world? No, but this is a seat of power. This is an important, significant city to the kingdom of darkness. This was a city where Satan was using this place. This was a place where there was great darkness and it had a great force in the region. And I want to tell you, because I believe this with all my heart, that there are those places right on the earth today. And God wants to send his church to these places. To set up right in these places. Because if you've read John 1, you know this. That when the light comes into the world, the darkness cannot overpower it. So what a statement that Jesus says, you are living in a city where Satan has his throne. Now that could mean a lot of things. He could be talking about the, the, the cult of the emperor that was so strong in this city where, where Rome had, had set up that stronghold of you've got to worship the emperor. It could have meant, you know, that they, they could have easily had a picture in their mind of that throne that Zeus was sitting on in that great temple. Pieces of that altar are still in, in a museum in Berlin to this day. It was called one of the wonders of the ancient world. They could have thought of that. They could have thought of the, the evil, evil paganism that had, had woven its way throughout society. Or they could have easily thought about the fact that all of these together meant there was a place of great opposition for the light. Satan had set up a stronghold here. You know, you see throughout the Bible, especially in places like the book of Daniel, where when Daniel's praying, an angel comes to him, angel Gabriel says, I had to fight the prince of Persia to get here. I had to fight the prince of Greece to get here. He wasn't talking about some king, some human king. He was talking about a, a spiritual force that's, that's over these territories. Somehow Pergamum is a significant place and it's significant to Satan. It's interesting that he uses the word Satan, the name Satan. He could have said the devil. He could have said all these things. But Satan in itself meant the one that was stood against, the adversary, the, the, the slanderer, really, the accuser. And that comes up all the way through Revelation, right? Talks about the great dragon that's thrown down, and he says the, the accuser of our brethren who accuses our brothers day and night. These guys are being accused for things they never even would have thought of doing. I've said this to you before, but, you know, when I was a kid, I, I used to look up to these Christians who died for their faith, but in my head, you know, they, they, in my head, everybody knew they were nice people, right? You know, Spiro and Tina have been with them to some of the churches in, in Greece that they grew up with, and, and you know, they have a lot of the pictures of the saints on the walls, and a lot of times, those pictures show their death, but if you've looked at like medieval artwork of, of the death of saints and the death of uh, early apostles and stuff. There's like halos on their head. There's a light shining down, you know. They, they're dying, but everybody's like, look, this is a holy person. Miss Tina's church freaked me out. Her childhood church as a little girl, the patron saint was John the Baptist, which you might think is great, except remember how John the Baptist died. He got his head chopped off. So all throughout her, her childhood church are pictures of a guy like holding his head, of, of a guy kneeling down and there's just a stump with blood spurting out. And I said, you were a little girl in this church? What do you think? Well, it was what we saw. We just got used to it. It was like, <laughs> that was, it was pretty interesting. 
But you know the Christians who were killed for their faith, and even to this day that are being killed for their faith, people aren't saying, oh, they're such nice people. Let's kill them. The Christians, the early church Christians who were killed, were killed for being arsonists, even though they weren't. They were charged with being atheists of all things because they denied the gods of the state. They were charged with with treason. They were charged, they were gossiped about, and people said that they were cannibals. People said that they were committing incest in their gatherings. People said they killed babies. These are the things they went to their death for. And if you're anything like me, I would happily die. I just want you to know that I'm a good guy. Right? (laughs) Go ahead and kill me, but no, I'm doing this for Jesus. But in reality, Satan is a slanderer. Slander is when you tell lies about somebody. Peter said, keep your behavior, behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles, the people that don't have a covenant with God, so that in the thing that they slander you in, in the day of visitation, they'll glorify God. Which means you're going to be lied about. Are you okay with that? You're going to be misunderstood. How does that feel? Even today, the scripture tells us in the last days, there will be people that call good evil and evil good. Today, if you stand for Jesus, if you you say, I believe the Bible, there's going to be somebody who calls you a hater. There's going to be somebody who calls you a bigot. Now, there's bigots who use the Bible to hide behind. We know that. But I'm talking about somebody that genuinely loves people, that will lay down their life for people, even people that don't know Jesus, and yet somebody's going to call them hateful because they choose to identify with Jesus. That's what happened to these guys. They were being accused of all sorts of things, and yet he said, I know that you live there. I know you live in the darkest place you could possibly live, and I'm not asking you to move. I'm asking you to stay faithful. See, throughout this series, we're talking about what it means to overcome, which is interesting because on Sunday, we're talking about victory. And a lot of times, we see that in very specific terms. This is what victory looks like. This is what overcoming looks like. It's that moment where I, I finally gain the top of the hill and I plant a flag. And sometimes that's what it looks like. But other times, overcoming means you stood your ground. You didn't lose your ground. You stood firm when everything was trying to get you to give up you stayed standing overcoming in their instance didn't mean that they were somehow you know turning their whole city green and and, uh, that somehow everybody in the city started to love Jesus overcoming meant they were in the darkest place they could be the place where Satan has his throne and they still didn't lose their faith that was overcoming That can only happen through Jesus. He said, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast. What? My name. I often think about what does it take for us to keep holding on? You know, there are people that come to church, join the body because they're lonely. And they found love here. And I thank God for that. You should. There are people that join because, you know, this is the way they were raised and think it's right. And that's all right. But ultimately, what's going to hold you in a time where it's hard to hang on? What's going to hold you in a time where it's unpopular to be called a follower of Jesus? And really, 
what are you hanging on to? Are you hanging on to your group of friends? And I'm not preaching to youth tonight. That's usually the message we tell youth because youth are very social, but so are we. I remember I asked the teenagers a couple of years ago at, at camp, what would happen if your parents got up tomorrow morning and said, we don't believe this anymore? And I said, would we see you on Sunday? Right? What's keeping you? What this church is hanging on to is not, a, not their old sense of, well, we've believed this for centuries, because they haven't. They just started believing this in the past few you know, in the past several decades, this is, not a, this is not an old tradition for them. This is fairly new. What are they hanging on to? They're hanging on to his name. Right. You've hold fast my name. You didn't deny my name. You didn't let go of my name. You, hang, you held on to it, and, and, and you kept it. You, you called yourself by my name. You weren't ashamed to be called a Christian. You weren't ashamed to be called a follower of Jesus. You weren't ashamed to be associated with me or my brother's. He said, you did not deny my faith. Faith, that word can be used a lot of different ways in the New Testament. Often we talk about faith, the evidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But faith is often referred to, is also referred to in, in the New Testament as, you'll hear it called the faith, Right? And when we're talking about the faith, we're not talking about faith so much so in, as a Hebrews 11 faith, although they go together. We're talking about what we believe. Like, like the faith is in, this is what we believe. This is who we are. This is, this is what we believe about God. So Jude says, you need to earnestly defend the faith, contend for the faith. You need to fight for this faith. And Jesus said, you didn't deny my faith. So when you were asked to deny what you believed, you held on to it. You said, no, I believe this. I hold true to what the Bible says. I hold true to what the apostles taught us. I, I hold true to what I say I believe. And even when it got hard, I, I hold on to it. He said, even in the days of Antipas, and not much is known about this guy. There was a historian, a, a church historian, like in the 10th century that wrote about him. That's hundreds of years later. But it's like the, one of the only sources we have about this guy. So you could take it or leave it. It's not scripture. But this historian had gathered from church records that Antipas was a, an early leader, early pastor, leader of the Christians in Pergamum. And that Antipas actually was put to death in an iron bull. Which I don't know if you've ever heard of an iron bull. It's not a pleasant device hundreds and hundreds of years old by the time Antipas would have come along. But it was basically this, this big iron bull that was hollow on the inside and they'd put somebody in it and then they'd light a fire under it and you would slowly roast alive. And they put certain uh, pipes in it so that when you would scream, it would sound like the bellowing of a bull. That's a terrible way to go. And according to that church historian, that's how this guy died. Now, you could take that or leave it, but it was not uncommon for them to be very sadistic when killing Christians because they wanted the rest of the Christians to stop believing this. See, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's not really the devil's goal to kill all the Christians. He'd rather have a compromised Christian. He's much more afraid of a dead Christian than a compromised Christian. Because a dead Christian still testified to God. Because he, he said, hey, I'm not afraid to lose my life. 
Because I know I have, you can't take my life. My life's in him. But a compromised Christian, that's very easy to lead a whole bunch of other people astray. Paul talked about Demas. He said, Demas forsook me. He loved the present world more than God. I talked to you about this, about how uh, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, the three Hebrew children in the book of Daniel, how they wouldn't bow to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember this? And do you remember that the penalty for not bowing was death in a furnace? Real similar to what might have happened to this guy. But remember the conversation that Nebuchadnezzar has with them? He doesn't instantly say, kill them. He begs them to, to recant. He begs them to go back and, do, and say, okay, we, we'll bow to you. Why? He would rather have them compromise than kill them. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, don't die. Don't go to your death. What does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. It was Satan saying, you don't have to die. Satan's trying to get Jesus to compromise rather than die. Satan would rather have Jesus compromise than, than go to his death. Same thing with you. This idea of my faithful, my witness, my faithful one. Look how Jesus claims him. It sounds like somebody that Jesus really likes, doesn't it? He owns him. See, he's mine. Antipas, Antipas was my witness. He was my faithful one. Because Antipas didn't turn when he was faced with death. That word witness, many of you will know, is where we get the word martyr from. Why? Because, because in the Greek and Roman system, that a witness was charged with telling the truth no matter what. One of the things they held so vital in their civilization was that if you were a witness and you were called to testify in a court, you told the truth even if it cost you everything. Did they keep this law? No, of course not. People are people, right? They'll lie. But that was what they held as a high standard. Well, the Christians held themselves to even a greater standard. They said, if we're going to witness, we are going to testify. So a lot of these people, when they died, they weren't just put to death. They were given an opportunity to speak in front of the court. We get a letter from uh, Trajan, sorry, from Pliny the Younger to Trajan saying, how do I deal with Christians? This is how I've been dealing with them. I find out who they are, I put them on trial, and I try to get them to recant. I try and I give them several opportunities to say, okay, I deny Jesus, and, and, and I'll, they'll give a sacrifice to Caesar, and they'll drink the wine, and they'll do all of that, and I'll make an oath, and so his goal is get them to turn and recant what they said. Get them to, get them to say, I don't believe in Jesus, I believe in the emperor. And if, if I can't convince them after a bunch of tries, I'll kill them. Well, think about this. Jesus said, they're going to put you in front of these, their courts for my name. He says, this will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So here's what the Christians did in the early church. When they were put on trial, if they were given a chance to speak, they used their chance to speak. Who was the first martyr in the early church? Stephen. You know, in the, in, in the book of Acts, the story of Stephen, more than how he died, we see his little sermon at the end, don't we? It was that sermon 
that started the process of Saul of Tarsus, who later become Paul, getting poked by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus saying, it's been hard for you to kick against my goads. Saul begins persecuting the church the day after Stephen gives his message. Because that witness of who Jesus was had an effect on Saul. Had an effect on all the people there. Don't you know that these Christians, when they stood up for something, even when they were faced with death, they stood true to the name of Jesus. And when they did, the world saw that it wasn't a fad, it wasn't a trend, it wasn't something, it was something they knew, they believed to the core of who they were. And Jesus is proud of Antipas. He's mine. He's my witness, my martyr, my faithful one, who was killed among you, among you, he wasn't killed in some remote place. He was killed in the middle of the city. You guys saw him die. You saw him be tortured and executed, and yet you didn't deny me, even though even he didn't deny me. He was killed among you where Satan dwells. In our remaining time here, I, I hope I'm not depressing you, um, <laughs> but I want you to see that there's something very powerful about the church being the church in a place that Satan thinks he has a right to rule. You know what I'm saying? I, I really love Ephesians 6. I love Ephesians 6, not just because it teaches me how to be a good dad, although it does, but it goes on and it talks about the armor of God, right? I, I just want you to see something. I know we've said it before, but... Can you just follow with me in Ephesians 6 and see a pattern here? In Ephesians 6, of course, he, he lays out what the armor of God looks like. It's not, you know, a physical piece of armor. It's, it's literally walking in the things that God's given you. So, Girding your loins with truth, keeping a breastplate of righteousness, shouting your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. All of these things are not just like something you put on in the morning. This is you walking through your life. And when you walk through the life in the power of God and the power of the Spirit, you're putting this armor on. And he says this in verse 16, Ephesians 6, 16. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which, I'm sorry, I, I, go back. I, I don't know why I'm skipping through things. Verse 13, Hebrews, uh, Ephesians 6, 13. Therefore, taking up the full armor of God. Why, why do I keep starting late? Go to verse 10. Let's just keep climbing up until we get to the beginning of Ephesians. Let's go back to Genesis. Let's start there. Genesis 1, 1. <laughs> Sorry, Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Those three words are important. Four words. You will be able. You will be able. You will. Not you should, not you might, not some of you. You will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. 
If we're talking about rulers and powers, don't you think that goes along with Jesus saying, this city is where Satan has a throne. This is a place where he's ruling from. Well, he just said, when you are standing in him, in him, when you are strong in the strength of the Lord, you can stand in a place and you'll stand firm against all the schemes of the devil. Then he goes on and he says this, therefore, take up the full armor of God. So you, you know, you're not just born with it. It's not just there because you, you said a prayer. You've got to take it up. You've got to walk in righteousness. You've got to walk in faith. You've got to speak truth. You've got to believe truth. Amen. Right? So through all these things, he's saying, all right, take it up so that you will be able. Once again, those four words, you will be able to resist in the evil day. I, I know I've said this to you, so please pardon me repeating myself, but the evil day sounds like the worst day. And the day we're talking about is not a 24-hour day. We're talking about a season. We're talking about a time where the worst of the worst is being thrown at you. What does he say? You will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, stand firm. Stand firm, therefore. When you've done everything to stand firm, stand firm. Stand firm, therefore. having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith, and there's that phrase again, with which you will be able to extinguish all, all, all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Stop for a minute and just see that. You'll be able to stand firm against all the schemes of the devil. You'll be able to resist in the evil day. You'll be able to stand firm. Even when you've done everything to stand firm, you're still standing firm. And you will be able to, with the shield of faith, quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. Do you realize that he's just described the devil throwing everything he's got? His entire arsenal has been thrown at you and you're still standing at the end of it. Is there anything more demoralizing to the kingdom of darkness than the fact that they threw everything at you? <sighs> Let me ask you what's worse. Two fighters get in a ring, okay? Two fighters get in a ring. They throw all their punches. They fight a good fight, back and forth, back and forth, but one guy falls down. Uh, the other guy was a bigger fighter. He was a stronger fighter. We didn't expect him to win, but he put up a good fight. Everybody goes home happy. But what if they step into the ring and the big guy comes and the little guy faces him? And the guy that everybody thinks is the big guy, at least, throws his big punch, throws his best punch. And the guy looks at him and goes, is that all you got? So he gets a little angry, right? He's getting a tick now. And he just goes at him. He gets a, it's just a barrage of left, right, left, right, up, down. And, and he's hitting him, hitting him, hitting him. And you can see through his face that he's angry now. He's furious. And the guy looks at him and says, you done? What's worse? Having a good fight with somebody and getting knocked out? What's worse? Or, or are you just standing there and going, that didn't even hurt? Or maybe that, that hurt, but you're not going to let on that it hurt. You're just going to look at him and say, are you done yet? I'm still standing. Can you imagine what might be, what could be more frightening than, than using all your best weapons, all your best bombs, all your best nukes, and the thing you're trying to destroy is still there? 
That would be terrifying. Terrifying. This is what's happening when this person is standing in the strength of the Lord. You know, maybe that doesn't look like victory to you. Maybe it doesn't look like victory to say, I got hit a bunch of times. They're throwing darts at me. The day is evil. You promised me nice days. You promised me flower days. You promised me ice cream days. And yet this is an evil day. And yet you're still standing. That's victory. That's overcoming. See, I believe overcoming is, is seeing the victory too. You know, seeing the other side of it. Getting through the tunnel, seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. But sometimes victory is, is still, is, is everything that's been thrown at you, you're still there. Couldn't shake you off your faith. Couldn't shake you from what you believed. You're still there. Jesus says, I know where you live. You live where Satan has his throne. I know my servant Antipas was killed in the place where Satan dwells. But at the end of the letter, he says, to the one who overcomes, this is what I'll give you. What does overcoming look like for them? They're in the darkest place they could live, and yet they're not bending. The darkness is not overpowering the light. What a powerful statement. What a frightening statement if you're on the other side. If you can't kill the church in the city where you have your throne, where can you kill the church? You know right now, when you look, at, you look right now at what God's doing in the Middle East, in the places where ISIS has their headquarters, the Christians are still there. Even though they try to wipe them out and kill them, and they've killed many Christians. But the church is still there. We get reports from Christians. And it's not like there's a tattered bunch of people that are still there. People are still getting saved. Jesus is appearing to people. Can you imagine how terrifying it must be to the enemy to know that in the place where he seems to have his strongest foothold, there are still believers that can't be crushed? I want you to know that the faith that you have is more precious than gold and it can't be destroyed like the enemy thinks he can destroy it if you hold on to it. Once again, Jesus said, They might throw you in prison, they might kill you, but they can't harm a hair on your head. They really can't touch what matters. I want to be that faithful witness, you know? You might say, what am I supposed to feel right now? What am I supposed to believe right now? Why are you preaching this? Well, first of all, I'm preaching this because I promised you we'd go through it. But secondly, and more importantly, the reason I think this matters to us today is because whether you know it or not, we're facing opposition. It just looks different. Nobody's threatening to put you to death yet or right now. You know what happens, though, if you stand by Jesus, you stand by his word and stand by his people? You might get pushed to the outside. You might get pushed to the fringe. And in our culture, that's the worst thing that could happen. It's that you get publicly shamed. You get cast out. People look at you, misunderstand you, and slander you. Well, here's some good news for you. Jesus knows where you live. If right now you feel like you are working in the place where Satan has his throne, like you, you work for that guy. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Satan has a throne in the back room. Jesus says, I know where you work. Maybe, you, maybe you're at home and, and certainly Satan doesn't have a throne in your house, but you feel like you're in, standing in an evil day. 
You feel like everything's being thrown at you, thing after thing, incident after incident, situation after situation keeps getting thrown at you. Why? Why? Well, you just keep standing in the strength of God, in the armor of God, and you will be able to stand firm in the evil day. You don't have to crumble. You will be able to quench every fiery dart of the evil one. You will be able to resist all, every single one of the schemes of the devil. There is not anything he's got that can really touch what's valuable to you. No weapon formed against you will prosper. Every tongue that rises up against in judgment against you, you will condemn. We believe this, right? I believe this to my core. So don't fear. Take courage. Jesus says in all of these things, you will have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. There's nothing you need to be afraid of. So he goes on and he says, later in Revelation, he says, There's a bunch of people that are going to come to him, and he's going to say, they overcame him. They overcame the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives even when faced with death. That's how they overcame. The blood of the lamb, they knew who they belonged to. They knew who they belonged to. They knew knew that Satan couldn't touch them because they belonged to Jesus. They knew they, they couldn't be ripped out of his hand. The word of their testimony. They, they stood by this faith. They stood by the name. They didn't change what they said based on what people wanted to hear. And they did not love their lives even when faced with death. The people that were standing in front of Jesus when he said it were people that probably might have had their heads chopped off. They might have been put to death. And yet he says, these are the overcomers. Right? These are the overcomers. They held my name. They kept my faith, and there's a crown waiting for them. If if they're willing to do that, what are we willing to do? Right? There's going to be a time, maybe even this week, where it might be unpopular for you to stand next to the name of Jesus and to claim it. Even more likely, Paul said, don't be ashamed of the gospel or of me. A lot of us will say, well, we're not ashamed of Jesus, but we're sure ashamed of our fellow Christians. There's always somebody that's going to get hit before us. He says, don't be ashamed of me, his ambassador in chains. Like, you'll have people that say, I'm not ashamed of Jesus, but I don't know that guy. When we stand with one another, and we stand for Jesus, even in the place where Satan thinks he has all the power in the world, he can't overpower the light. The light overpowers the darkness. And you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter where you're from. In Lloydminster right now, there is a real strong urge for you to combine your culture with the kingdom of culture. It doesn't matter what culture you're from. Don't you know I have to leave my culture? Sometimes we look at the, this tribe in Africa and go, oh, you have to leave your idols. But we forget that here in North America, we got a ton of idols. We just dress them up real nice. And we figured out a way to bring them into church and maybe find a scripture that makes them seem okay. But they don't go with Jesus. No matter what church you enter into, no matter what city you enter into, you should find a group of people who look different than everybody else because they've had to leave a culture to his culture and yet they're still in the culture, right? They haven't abandoned the culture. They haven't, they haven't cursed the culture, but they are of a higher culture. They're in the they're, they're kingdom of Jesus. They're, they belong to him, and they look different. And I want to encourage you to be firm 
in what you believe. But also, I want to tell you this. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid that you're going to fall into that trap. You know, I used to be afraid when I was a little kid. I, I, I was afraid of something very specific. I was afraid that if I ever was faced with the opportunity to, to have to die for Jesus, that if it was quick, I'd stay true. But if it was drawn out, that I might, I might deny Jesus and so, and so I, would, I would try to make myself stronger and I'd try to convince myself that my will was strong enough. But I believe this now, that it's not my will that would save me in that moment. It's, it's Jesus. It's, it's Christ in me. Because I've read some stories of people across the world right now that are facing persecution. And you know, when you read about a seven-year-old girl who refuses to spit on her Bible, you know that it's not about a strong guy. It's about what's inside that little girl. There's something in us that is greater than he that's in the world. And that's Jesus himself. That's the spirit of God himself. I want you to know that in the evil day, you will not bend. In all the schemes of the devil, devil does not have a plan that can get you derailed. Doesn't have one if you hang on to Jesus. He's got nothing that can destroy you. He's got nothing that can pull you out of Jesus' hand. He's got nothing. Jesus said the ruler of this world is being judged. And he says, he's got nothing in me. That's what we get to say to you today. Don't be afraid. What if I fall away? What if I fall back? Stop talking like that. What if I trip? What if I fall? What if I deny Jesus? Quit talking that way. Faithful is he who called you. Faithful will he be to bring it to pass. You hang on to Jesus and know this. He's hanging on to you. You just stay true to his name. What did he say? You held tight to my name. That's all you got to do. Hold tight to his name. Paul said, hold tight to his word. Hold fast to the word of life. And you'll shine like stars in the midst of a dark universe. Hold tight. Because at the end of the day, and this is what I'll close with, at the end of the day, it's not holding fast to the, to the word church that's going to keep you. It's not holding tight to your friends that's going to keep you. It's not even holding tight to granny believed this. Right? It's holding tight to him. That's what will keep you. And I'm telling you, it will keep you. Be strong. Be of good courage. He's overcome the world. Amen. Amen. Let's stand up.